Hi everyone. Welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast, brought to you by TUMI, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. The global transport sector is changing. More and more countries are establishing ambitious targets in support of transport electrification. E-mobility is seen as one of the key enablers for reducing emissions and improving air quality. By 2040, more than two-thirds of electric car sales in the world are expected to be electric, with even higher market shares in some parts of the world. However, to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement, a global transformation must take place, also in regions where the implementation of e-mobility solutions seems more difficult. In Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, challenges arise from unreliable electricity systems, missing availability of capital and high dependency on an informal transport sector. That is why today we are welcoming Catherine Collett, who is giving us exciting insights into her research, focusing on the various challenges associated with transitioning towards a carbon-free transport sector. My colleague Lina and Catherine had a chat about the technical advances that will make this transition possible and the question how electric vehicles will be best adopted in Sub-Saharan Africa. Catherine is a senior postdoctoral researcher in the engineering department at the University of Oxford and has expertise in electric vehicle integration both within the UK and Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm really excited and I would say, let's listen in. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Lena. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to dive deeper with you today into a topic that I think has been a bit overlooked so far, and that is electromobility in sub-Saharan Africa. So to kick off, can you tell us a bit about what you're particularly focusing on in this topic and why you're interested in this area? Um, personally, for me, my interests lie more broadly in mitigating climate change. And this is how I, I came to look at this topic. So historically, the majority of emissions um, have come from high income countries, where much investment is, and political will is being put behind emissions reductions and meeting net zero targets. Um, however, in the low and middle income countries, there's so much growth still to come. And the question remains, how can this growth occur um, with the, without these countries being locked into fossil fuels, which cause many additional challenges, which I, I think we'll go into on top of um, climate change. So as part of the Climate Compatible Growth Programme, which is funded by the UK's government's um, Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, F FCDO, um, I'm now part of a team which will be working with stakeholders in these selected countries um, including in sub-Saharan Africa, to try and understand how high-income countries can, in partnership with low- and middle-income countries, best support the development of new transport innovation, um, which will be context-specific and price-appropriate for these low- and middle-income countries. That's really interesting because you're already pointing there to the fact that there might be a different way to approaching this topic of electromobility in countries in sub-Saharan Africa to, for example, countries like the UK or Germany, where we're currently positioned in. And so looking at that, what do you see as the greatest opportunities in sub-Saharan Africa when deploying EVs? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the crux of the matter is that the approach will need to be different. Um, so perhaps before I answer the question about the greatest opportunities, we can talk a little bit about how 
the um, transport it kind of is different in low middle income countries. Um, so, you know, as we've been saying, the mobility in sub-Saharan Africa is not the same as mobility in high income countries. Um, and we really need to understand these mobility patterns um, so that you know, planning can occur and, and the right approaches and pathways can be taken for low and middle income countries. So more specifically, um, you know, actually the in sub-Saharan Africa, the majority of um, journeys are taken using um, paratransit vehicles, which are informal, um, distributed and kind of demand responses, often minibuses. So you wait and you, you queue up for the minibus and the minibus leaves once it's full from um, a minibus kind of transport hub. And then all the minibuses go off in different directions and stop at places where they're requested to stop. Um, and this can be, you know, it, it's got its, its own um, challenges and advantages. But in cities in sub-Saharan Africa, this paratransit system accounts for between 50 to 98% of automotive passenger trips um, across the different countries. Whereas in high income countries, for example, in the UK, about 85% of journeys are made in private cars. So that is a drastically different type of system. Um, one is much more about kind of shared um, kind of mobility as a service in sub-Saharan Africa, whereas in the UK, it's much more a private model where everyone owns their own car. So the vehicles are different and the mobility patterns are different. Um, so hopefully that kind of is a slight outline of, of the differences. But if we then go back to uh, the opportunities, I see that there are kind of four main opportunities for electric vehicles um, to kind of benefit sub-Saharan Africa. So firstly, um, there's uh, the opportunity for improved geopolitical independence as the energy needed to power the electric vehicles can be generated domestically by renewable generation, for example, such as solar or if you're in Kenya, geothermal, um, um, instead of being imported as gasoline. So that's one. Uh, secondly, there are, can be financial benefits, and both to governments um, that offer fossil fuel subsidies for gasoline. These could, for example, be reduced or repurposed towards um, installation of renewable generation, again, so, something like solar. Um, and also there's financial benefits that can be felt for the vehicle owner operators because the operating cost of an electric vehicle is much lower than for a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. Some um, modelling we did recently is that um, it is cheaper per kilometre to operate an EV um, by 15 cents per kilometre in countries such as Congo and in Zambia. So Annually, if you're um, if you owned a minibus that was transporting people and you drove 100 kilometers a day or something, um, five days a week, you know this could really add up and kind of become in the thousands of US dollars per year. Um, so you know it's, it's not in insignificant um, money we're talking about. Then thirdly, um, obviously there are the benefits of reduced emissions and improved air quality. So in all sub-Saharan African countries a switch to electric vehicles will reduce emissions, which is something that I think surprises people. So already, if you switch now, today, um, the grid is, is, is going to provide you with benefit. And that is because although the electricity might be produced using um, fossil fuels at the grid scale, the electric vehicle is more efficient 
than the internal combustion engine vehicle. And that difference in efficiency means that you actually have a reduction in emissions. So I think that that's really um, something important to take home. Um, and also, along with this, a switch to electric means that the air quality in urban areas especially um, is improved due to the reduced kind of the lack of tailpipe emission. The final one um, is that the presence of electric vehicles in the system can allow investment in renewable energy to be de-risked because electric vehicles are a flexible demand which can be plugged in and charged at times when there is excess generation from renewables which means that if you're producing a lot of solar panel power during the day and you didn't have enough demand on the system at that time you could charge up the electric vehicles and that would mean that electricity that otherwise could be wasted or curtailed um, is able to be used and that really can benefit the economy as a whole, um, resolve some of the issues around um, kind of, of around financing of um, renewables on the grid. Um, and having these um, additional renewables on the grid also helps to avoid um, electricity scarcity, which is something we'll come on to, I think, in a, in a bit probably. Um, and we could, in fact, go one step further and if these vehicles were able to put electricity back into the national grid through a, a technology or, or a process called vehicle to grid, then they effectively act as grid level batteries, which can store renewable energy and feed it back to the grid to um, meet the demands when they are there. And that would really improve electricity reliability, which is something that a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa struggle with. I mean, those are the number of opportunities you just mentioned. It's it's really extensive. I think it's very interesting also that you highlighted the aspect of no matter what the electricity mix in the grid currently is made up of, the fact that just the vehicle itself is more efficient already brings a benefit in terms of emissions. I think that's something that's that's a lot of times very much overlooked in these discussions. Um, and then I think it's also interesting that you're highlighting this, these financial opportunities for governments, but also for owners or operators of these vehicles, because I think that's um, quite critical for people very much on the ground when they consider switching to uh, e-vehicles, or especially for governments, if they think about, is it worth it for them to um, support this transition within their country? And I think one of the, the main differences, of course, why we can't really draw too many parallels between different regions in the world is exactly this, this informality of transport that you just, just described in sub-Saharan Africa. And so I'm wondering, because that is quite a different system and there's not one entity, you know, overlooking everything and, and having all the information, can you tell us a bit about what this system means in terms of challenges for deploying EVs. So if cities or governments looking at really starting this transformation, this mobility transformation, what are some of the things that they need to look to in order to make it really applicable or let's say favorable to the mobility system within their cities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that there will be a variety of challenges, but I, I want to, you know, depending on the actual location, but there are three that I think I'll pick up on. Um, the first one is power provision. So making sure that you can actually charge the vehicles. Um, the second one is about making sure that the right type of vehicles are available and on the market. And then finally, um, there's the financing issue. So although there are financial benefits, actually, you know, often these uh, vehicles are going into capital constrained environments and the upfront costs of electric vehicles could be prohibitive. Um, 
so if we can, I can look into those a little bit further. And so if we take the power provision, the first one, um, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa currently suffer from generation deficits. So they don't generate enough um, electricity to uh, be able to, you know, and sometimes they um, then introduce rolling blackouts to manage as a management mechanism, um, which makes the idea of adding this additional load of electric vehicles onto the system quite daunting or challenging. Um, which is why, you know, there's the idea that this electric vehicle introduction, alongside with the addition of renewable energy generation, um, which is dropping in cost, you know, still, um, and kind of undercutting uh, fossil fuel generation, would be the ideal um, to kind of complement each other. So the electric vehicles plus introduction of additional um, generation um, and one kind of the introduction of the electric vehicles, as we were saying earlier, can de-risk the investment in the renewables, um, which can help uh, more holistically. Uh, the second one, when I was saying about um, context-specific vehicles, comes back to this difference in high-income countries and um, low-middle-income countries. At the moment, m- the majority of electric vehicles that have been designed um, to or, and brought to market have been for cars. And minibuses especially have received uh, very little attention just because the market has been really focusing and being, you know, the R&D has been occurring in um, the higher income countries and and the focus there is different. So I think an investment in um, developing kind of context appropriate vehicles will be really important. There's already been some work on um, two and three wheelers and a lot of, you know, a lot of two and three wheelers sold nowadays are electric because of the benefits that electric vehicles can offer. Um, but the minibuses have still kind of slightly behind on that. And then the price for the upfront cost, which was the third point I mentioned, um, that needs to they need to be affordable. Um, and I think that innovative financing mechanisms will be really helpful to support the business models that come out. So, for example, vehicle leasing or low-interest loans, which could allow vehicle owner operators um, to transition to an electric vehicle and pay the cost back over, you know, a number, a couple of years using the savings that they have made from the lower operational costs could be a real opportunity um, to kind of offer offer benefit to the, the society as a whole. And when we talk about electric vehicles, of course, we also need to think about charging infrastructure. So, is there already an idea how a mobility system that's quite informalized and that's sort of operating, so to speak, with many different brains, I always like to put it like that, is already an approach to how um, governments or other actors could support the development of infrastructure for this particular type of system? Or let's say, are there any things that governments particularly need to keep in mind when they're trying to install infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the important um, points that my uh, colleague uh, Dr. Stephanie Hammer and I have been trying to highlight is that we really need data. (laughs) We need this data um, to be able to make informed planning decisions. Um, So the data that we're looking at that would really help governments, investment, investors, financing, um, the the innovators and entrepreneurs on the ground who might be um, installing charge points or trying to offer these business models. We need to, um, and also the electricity companies who are actually making sure that there is access to electricity in the right places. Um, it's very hard to make these decisions without the data. And the kind of data that we need is um, an understanding of 
when and where these vehicles travel, um, how far they're going, how fast they're going, how they're moving, um, to try and get a better understanding of um, the their energy that they use. So once you know where they're moving and also where they park during the day, you can use that data to um, translate that into how much energy the vehicle would need to be able to move. And from that understanding, you can then say, okay, so if I translated that, if I switched this vehicle out for an electric vehicle, how much electricity would that vehicle need to be able to, to be able to move around um, on this particular day? And okay, right. So it needs 10 kilowatt hours of, of electricity, of energy. Um, and it's plugged in between 12 and it's, it's parked up, sorry, between 12 PM and 2 PM. So imagine if it was plugged in, um, and it had a particular charger power, you know, could we use solar power to provide that? And where would we want to put that charger? So I think this data about basically trying to get GPS data of the um, vehicles and their movements will really help planners be able to identify where you want to place the charger, how high the charging capacity is going to be, and also what size battery you need to put inside these electric vehicles to be able them to actually offer their primary service of mobility um, to the citizens of these countries. So data really here again at the core of uh, improving the mobility system, firstly understanding how it currently works and then designing the solutions is what I'm getting from your answer. If you look at these opportunities and challenges, is there one key driver, one group of stakeholders that you say is instrumental to the electrification of mobility systems in sub-Saharan Africa? Or is it a range of, of stakeholders that you see in responsibility here to push forward? And, and why is that? I think, um, you know, there's a system that's in transition here. And so there is definitely a range of stakeholders. And, you know, every, we can't do it without um, one of them. You know, we need the electricity providers to be able to um, invest in it and make sure that there is uh, provision of, of kind of solar power and charging stations in the right places. You need the um, motorbike taxi owners and the minibus taxi owners or operators to be on board and often um, minibus taxis are kind of run out of an associate a minibus association um, and these associations kind of also one of the key players that we might not have mentioned yet today um, because they kind of can can influence many minibus drivers um, and and try and, and make sure that that there's there's a um, change in the system um, then again, governments and local authorities um, can get on board and really try and help with influencing where finance is, is going to um, to support uh, growth and investment in this area. Um, and again, financial lenders who, who may be outside of government, um, but finance, like lending from private, privately, they, they also have a great role to play in this. But I think for all of these parties, Uh, being able to make informed decisions will be vital in actually being able to implement change. So I'm, I'm hearing a clear call from your side that um, actors and stakeholders should not wait sort of for others to get involved first, but it really needs to be sort of a shared effort. And I'm also understanding that, you know, usually there's always this question about the hen-egg problem with renewable energies and electric mobility. But what I'm understanding from you as well is sort of both need to happen and there's not really one that has to go first but that they also mutually reinforce each other 
Yeah, I think conversations need to happen and action needs to kind of take place in parallel, um, which is always challenging. But actually, I think uh, when you see the benefits that electric vehicles could offer um, in certain circumstances and, and also the financial um, aspect for each of these players, there are there can be benefits. So uh, that should be a, that can be a motivation to make sure these conversations start and these actions can take place together. Right. And so if we now want to encourage our listeners to really start this transformation in their cities, what do you see as the first steps towards really enlarging the share of EVs in sub-Saharan African cities? Maybe if you can also from a, a government or administrative point, what needs to happen so that this can really kick off? Yeah, I think there's, um, if we kind of think of it in types of vehicles, there's two big types, of, two types of vehicles that are really dominant in sub-Saharan African cities. And that's the kind of the e-bike or maybe a, a three-wheeler in some cities, kind of, you know, the auto rickshaws. Um, so that's one group. And then the other group is the the minibuses. So if we look at the um, electric two and three-wheelers, they have really kind of started the trend. And in some cities, uh, they're, you know, across the world, they're already becoming very popular. And part of this is because they have smaller batteries um, because they're lighter vehicles, so they can travel travel further on less energy. So the smaller batteries mean that there are lower capital costs um, and that they require less time charging. And in fact, there are many business models out there where the batteries are simply swapped out when they're nearly empty and replaced with a fully charged one. And that can take seconds, you know, so you don't actually have to waste any time during which you might be um, gaining revenue from offering a mobility service by charging your vehicle. So that is one really exciting area. And then the other is about, if we talk about minibuses, um, there are also maybe opportunities that affordable methods of electrifying minibuses might facilitate a faster transition for these vehicles too. Um, and one of the alternatives that Professor Malcolm McCulloch um, of the Energy Power Group at Oxford University is pursuing is the concept of retrofitting existing minibuses with an electric drivetrain. So you already you keep the vehicle body and the only cost is to replace the drivetrain with um, the battery um, and electric system. So it's a way of reducing the capital costs of an electric vehicle. And his you know, calculations have shown that you could have payback times for a uh, you know, highly used um, minibus in the order of, of under a couple of years um, from this. So that's also quite an exciting concept. I think... This is kind of, you know, it, it relates to your question um, about governments, you know, and we've spoken earlier about how they can help to kind of encourage um, it, the encourage by financing um, or um, ch moving subsidies, perhaps, um, and kind of giving nudges in that way. Um, and also, you know, in, ensuring that there is um, space for innovation and entrepreneurs within their cities. I think that's really important in a space like this. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurial op opportunities um, in this area. But one of the other things that we must remember is that they kind of have a responsibility and that we must make sure when we start the introduction of electric vehicles is that, um, or, you know, even if they are made affordable, then the quality and the life expectancy of these vehicles should not be compromised because that would impact the financial modeling um, that each owner operator will have to consider. 
Um, and it could, you know, if they if they don't last as long as expected, then this would um, make purchase less favourable. So there needs to be some sort of um, regulatory framework around the standards of um, electric vehicles. And then additionally, there must be end of life strategies in place to repurpose or recycle um, batteries of the vehicles. Uh, this could take the form of, I think, kind of one of the appropriate options might be extended producer responsibilities to ensure that the cost doesn't fall on the owner operators um, themselves and to encourage the manufacturers who may be importing these vehicles into the country to, ado- to adopt a design for recycling practices, which is so important, you know, um, we need to make sure that, that the vehicles are, are um, dealt with properly at the end of their lives. So there's so many points, I think, that were great from, from you highlighted today. I think you've really managed to, to show us the multi-phase of this issue of bringing EVs to sub-Saharan Africa. And um, I mean, these different dimensions that you mentioned in the investment dimension, the emissions dimension, but also, and I think you've greatly um, said this multiple times, the question of bringing together all these different stakeholders involved um, and what role each of them has to play, I think that greatly outlines or highlighted what the challenge really is in those cities. Um, and I encourage all our listeners to also check out the publications that you've actually done on this topic. They're very easily digestible. They're not too long. And I think you provide some great um, examples, numbers and figures in there that really help to dissect this a difficult topic, I think. I think for many cities and countries still, this is really difficult to grasp. And so I just want to thank you for today, Catherine, for joining us in the podcast and giving us a glimpse into the work that you're you're doing, you've been doing, and you're, you're going to continue on doing with the CCGS. Um, and we hope to have you back here on the podcast at some point to maybe update us on your work and uh, what else you found out so that we can all benefit from more from some more tips from your side. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really enjoyable to talk about electric vehicles in sub-Saharan Africa with you. So thank you. And thanks to the listeners. Thanks a lot, Catherine, for sharing the interesting findings from your research. I think this really gives a better understanding of how sub-Saharan transport could become largely electrified and also what the financial as well as the climate implications could be. And of course, we heard it, there's not one solution for all. But with the new strategic approaches to vehicle electrification, which also considers the local context, I think we can find the best possible solutions and turn challenges into opportunities. And I'm sure we will work towards this goal together, also with the Tumi. And um, to our listeners, if you're interested to learn about e-mobility in general and specifically in regards to developing countries, Feel free to check out our Tumi website where we also compile lots of helpful materials, FAQs, webinars and the like about um, the relevant aspects of e-mobility. And of course, we will also put the link into the show notes of this podcast. I hope, of course, you enjoyed today's episode and that you will join us again. And as always, thanks for tuning in and hear you next time.